Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are now tuned in to yet another episode. We are finally in to some more trauma. I know it's been a while since we had some trauma episodes, and uh, we finally have another trauma episode for you all. And we have none other than Dr. Michael Leslie, who is actually going to come to us and talk about acetabulum fractures. And in particular, we're going to talk about diagnosing acetabulum fractures. So we talk everything about anatomy. We talk about physical exam. And very importantly, we talk about imaging and how to evaluate the imaging. So for those of you that are subscribed to our YouTube channel, you can tune into the video that accompanies this episode on YouTube. But we also try to describe things uh, in depth over audio for those of you that are listening. Uh, a little bit more about Dr. Leslie. He did his residency in the Peninsula Hospital Consultorium of North Shore, Long Island, Jewish Health System. And he did his fellowship in orthopedic traumatology at University of California, Davis. And he is now on staff at Yale School of Medicine. Um, so, again, he did a great job. We talked all about acetabulum fractures and it's this was actually something that was really interesting to me starting off in uh, in residency even though i'm going into sports uh, we still talk some acetabulum so without further ado go ahead and enjoy today's episode and if you want the show notes click the link in the description to get it you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole Dr. Leslie, welcome to the Nail the Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And now we get to talk a little bit of fractures, which is fun because the last couple of episodes have been mostly sports stuff, which is actually what I'm in fellowship for. But, I, you know, I like fractures. I like trauma. And it's always good to talk about it. And we always start off our podcast with just a couple of questions, getting to know our guests a little bit better. So what kind of brought you towards the field of trauma, per se, out of all the different things you could choose? Oh, great. Thank you. The, I think trauma was kind of a natural transition for me coming through residency. I think everyone kind of gets into orthopedics, or at least in my view, everyone gets into orthopedics because of broken bones. You always hear stories about the athlete who ruptured an ACL. That's why someone got into ortho. I just assumed that didn't happen. I assume everyone got into it because of the cool x-rays <laughs> and, uh, and the broken bones. So, But as I came through residency, I kind of realized I enjoyed open procedures. I enjoyed inpatient care. And for me, I felt like I can, could communicate pretty well with patients. And I was thinking to myself, well, what patients really need like communication skills and what patients could value best, you know, the things that I can bring to the table. And so I thought about that and I said, well, trauma makes perfect sense to me. Your, your, your time of greatest need, the thing you never expected. And to have someone who was willing to come to your bedside anytime and talk to you about what was going on and be interested in doing a, a big gnarly case or a small fracture case. That was really what kind of drew my interest into it. And it kind of fed into everything that I had done throughout my life. Yeah, I will say trauma was, was fun. In our residency program, we had four months of trauma every year as a resident. And those are those are fun months because, you know, you get to, you just like you say, you never know what the next day is going to be for the most part. And it could be anything from a simple ankle fracture to a you know, a complex acetabulum or a peel-on fracture. You, you can choose what you, not you can't choose, but there's a wide breadth of things that you can do. Sure. 
And another question, you know, just getting to know you better. Do you have any interests outside of field of orthopedics? You know, a lot of times we just talk about orthopedics, orthopedics, but we know people like to do things outside. And so we always find it a little interesting just to talk to guests, see if there's anything that they like doing outside of orthopedics. Sure. Yeah, I think that everybody kind of changes over the years. And what I always try to, you know, counsel my residents or talk to them about is how every time something happens in your life, you kind of have to give up a little bit of your life. And by that, I mean, with each kid, I kind of gave up something else and kind of got more into just my kids. And it was kind of a good transition for me because it kind of brought me back to stuff that I enjoyed a lot. Like one of the major things in my life outside of ortho is uh, coaching softball for my daughter and bringing her all over the place for travel and just doing things with the kids is probably my biggest thing. And the the other things I figure will come back someday once they uh, decide to grow up and uh, and get jobs. So. Right. All right. Yeah. The scary part when they leave the house and then you have all the time back. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. So. All right. Well, uh, well, awesome. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about some acetabulum fractures and really diagnosing them, which uh, for most junior residents, this is always a taunting thing. And you look at the x-ray and you hope maybe the radiology reads done. You try to look at the CT cuts and see what you can find. Uh, but today we're going to talk about a little bit about kind of diagnosing acetabulum fractures. And just to give our listeners kind of just some of a background, can you kind of just go over just some of the anatomy, the pertinent things we need to know about the acetabulum, kind of what makes it per se? Sure. Yeah, I think that the acetabulum is pretty daunting when, especially when you're a PGY2. And one of the one of the big things that I think will never change in uh, how we look at acetabulum fractures is they're not all that complicated. And if you just take a breath and say that to yourself, you assume that you can get through anything that isn't that complicated, right? The acetabulum is just kind of an extension of other parts of the body. It's an articular injury. The weird part about it is that it's a round joint. And being a round joint, it's not as easy to look at as you know, it's a more flat joint like a uh, proximal tibia. It's a little bit easier to see that proximal tibia. It can be, there's different ways you can look at things. And here you've got a really highly constrained joint and you've got fractures hiding behind it. So you have to figure out ways where you can use the patient's experience, like what happened to them, and then go ahead and use your knowledge of anatomy and kind of put those things together. So I think as you're learning acetabulum fractures, you have to learn pelvic ring injuries and acetabulum fractures together. That's the most important thing. And then you can start to understand how the acetabulum experiences a fracture. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally just, I totally agree. I found one of the things that helped me the most when I was a resident, I was lucky enough to get one of those pelvis models and looking at that and looking at the relationship between, just like you said, like the understanding the pelvic ring and the acetabulum and, you know, the different limbs and this and that. This was super helpful. In your experience, what people or what causes these injuries? You know, I guess what you could say the mechanism or what normally brings people to the hospital having a being diagnosed with acetabulum fracture? Yeah. So I think that the best way to look at acetabulum fractures is really mechanistic. So when you think about it, we kind of have two big categories of acetabulum fractures. We've got the young person who's doing 120 miles an hour on their motorcycle and comes down on their knees after flying through the air. That same person is in their car and they crash into a brick wall. Those are all injuries that are going to happen essentially through the knee, right? So those are going to force the hip, uh, force the uh, the femoral head posteriorly through the acetabulum. And that's 
going to give you a very predictable pattern of fractures. We'll talk about fracture patterns in a couple minutes, but those are going to give you what we call the posterior moieties, anything that comes out the back of the acetabulum. Whereas the other kind of major group of these is the old person, right? Grandma falls down, she falls onto her side, right? Almost invariably, very few elderly people fall onto, fall forward. They typically fall backwards. They're not going to fall on their knee and fracture their acetabulum. But as they fall onto their side, their trochanter makes contact with the ground and that drives the femoral head anteromedially. Nothing about an acetabulum fracture is ever just straight central. It's going to go anteromedially because the acetabulum, as remember, is really antiverted, facing forward. So as that femoral head hits it, it's going to create a very predictable pattern of an anterior moiety, an anterior type of acetabulum fracture. So I think that the mechanism is probably the most important thing. And obviously there's some crossover between the two. There's some crossover of the young person who gets that injury through their uh, lateral thigh, high energy car accident, something like that. But for the most part, we can kind of put those two categories out there and, and you're going to get a lot of the answers right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to recap kind of what you're saying, you know, younger patients, motor vehicle or something that's really, you're having most of your impact on the knee that's driving the, the femoral head posteriorly. And then our elderly patients, which are more times not falling on the side and getting that impact to the greater trochanter, which is going really more anteriorly, immediately into the acetabulum causing that injury. Absolutely. And so say, for example, you know, one of the residents comes to you and says, hey, we have this guy, they were diagnosed with a acetabulum fracture, 37-year-old male who was in a car accident. And that's all they give you. And you're trying to figure out, well, what's their physical exam? Like, what, what are some of the pertinent things that all residents or, you know, trainees need to know when they're examining these patients, what to look for and what not to miss? Sure. I think that one of the most important changes that uh, we made here in my home institution a long time ago when I got here uh, was that I immediately gave the residents a, a level one pager. So they immediately got every single level one trauma that was coming through the door. And I know that sounds ridiculous in some programs and in some programs you would say, no way, I could never do that. That's impossible. But right. reality is that it actually made everyone's life a lot easier because what you see when you when that patient hits the door is so critically important. How many times do you go down to the emergency room if you haven't been called for the level one trauma and the patient's already intubated or they've already been reduced or they've been straightened out in some way, shape or form? What you can see when they hit that trauma bay is really the most telling of everything they're going through. So if you can get a neurologic exam right off the bat, understand if that sciatic nerve is working, that's probably the most important thing. Because for many of the acetabulum fractures, the, the neurologic injury will be the sciatic nerve, and we wanna make sure that's working. Once you're done with that, then you can see that physical exam of the patient, right? Interestingly, last weekend, we had a patient come in who had an obturator dislocation of their femoral head. As they were trying to get this patient through the trauma bay door because her leg was completely out to the side. It was 90 degrees to her body. That's pretty telling. And it's actually important to be there and know that because it's a very predictable physical exam finding. In addition, you can look at the rotation of the limbs. So say you have a posterior dislocation, it's going to be just like a posterior hip dislocation. It'll be shortened. It'll be internally rotated. If you've got a central dislocation, which is what kind of people colloquially call it, but anterior moieties, the leg will typically be externally rotated and shortened. So all those things can kind of key you off right away as to understand 
exactly what's going on in that hip socket, if that's truly the injury. And then you really want to get a good look at the soft tissues. What's the best time to get a look at the soft tissues, particularly posteriorly when they roll the patient? And you're never going to want to roll them again because you're going to be alone in that trauma bay with no one there to help all you. Right. So my, we've all been there, right? So the best time to do it is when you actually have a whole team there. And, you know, many times the orthopedic resident is on call for spine also. So it's a good time to get that rectal done when everybody's there to roll them. You really want to take a good look. Last year, I actually had a patient who came in who had what looked like a relatively simple posterior wall, but it was pretty comminuted. She was very slender. And I went to examine the patient in the morning and I said to myself, why is there blood on the sheets? I just don't really understand this. And the blood was on the contralateral posterior aspect of the patient. So I rolled her myself and it was an open fracture, but it had opened over the contralateral SI joint all the way through the oh, soft wow. tissue. So when I took her to the OR that afternoon, did a coker Langenbach, opened everything up. It was a complete disruption of the soft tissues straight over to this open wound posteriorly. So directly from her wow. right hip, from her left hip to her right SI joint, everything was open. So, you know, be there when the patient comes in and really concentrate on the position of the patient and everything that's going on. And you're going to pick up a lot of these things before you ever get a chance to look at an x-ray. Yeah, I hope everybody listening to this now would never misses that. They will look at the other contralateral hip and make sure there's no open fractures uh, for anybody that's listening to this. So again, just to recap, main things you said, ideally you want to be there as soon as they get in and you want to be able to just to look and examine the patient, look at the position of their leg, see as it externally rotated, externally rotated, is the abducted, adducted, is there any type of rotation deformity? You want to obviously check all the skin, make sure there's no open fractures, especially the contralateral side. And then do a neurovascular exam, like you talked about the higher incidence of a sciatic nerve injury. Are there any other associated injuries that, you know, that people should, other areas of the body that people should examine or any other injuries that you see commonly with acetabulum fractures? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that's really been kind of directly reported as being highly associated, mostly because everything's highly associated. But you really want to take a good look at the patient, get a good tertiary exam to understand what else is injured, because with the level of injury that we're talking about, it can be really challenging to, to even diagnose other injuries. I mean, if your hip is fractured, dislocated, you may not be complaining about your distal radius fracture as much. So you really right. need to look at everything. But that whole side of the body, as particularly with these patients who have anterior moieties that come through the trochanter. You know, if it's from a car accident where they get T-boned or it is from a fall onto the ground, that whole side of the body is certainly at risk, but you just don't want to neglect anything and you want to make sure that everything gets looked at. Yeah. And so what, moving forward, you know, we've gotten the patient, we've examined them and we think they have a fracture. What type of imaging should we, should we be obtaining? You know, what, and then exactly what x-ray should we be obtaining? Are you obtaining any other advanced imaging? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that you can do is to fight the push towards CAT scan only. You know, I think that fight has been a little bit fought by having so many trauma-trained people out in programs and, and across really the country and many level twos and even level threes that I think the fight is, is being fought, but there's no, nothing like good plain radiography. Because when you really think about it, we're in the operating room, we're putting things together we're really using x-ray to put things back together, right? We're really using x-ray to judge things. So you want to start with that so you know where everything has been displaced to when they first hit that emergency room bay. So AP pelvis 
and then Judeview. If you haven't had the chance to read the first really kind of two chapters of uh, Dr. Leigh Turnell's book, you're kind of missing out on orthopedics and life in general. It is yeah. some of the most powerful reading you can do. And the cool part about it is even if you don't enjoy anything about orthopedics that has to do with broken bones, you will still learn so much from those chapters because you're going to learn about how the whole thing was developed. Like, how did they want to understand acetabulum fractures? And there's nothing cooler than understanding the history of how someone figured something out yeah. and understanding how they got to that point of the Judea views in particular is really kind of a critical thing. So Judea views are what we use for acetabulum fractures. You've got two, obturator oblique and iliac oblique. In all of orthopedics, in my opinion, the obturator oblique is probably the most important x-ray for us because it just gives you so much information. And we'll talk about like what goes into each one of those. But it, in general, you want to remember that the obturator oblique is going to show you your posterior wall, your anterior column, and your iliac oblique is going to show you your posterior column and your anterior wall. And those are going to kind of be the most important things. And then you want to use those first, really fight the urge to immediately go look at the 3D CT. Because I guarantee, <laughs> I guarantee I will catch you <laughs> and show you things that you cannot see on that 3D CT, but it definitely misses things, you know, when you immediately go to CAT scan and you have to understand how to read the CAT scan. But if you can start with those, that plain imaging, you're going to get so much more out of it. Yeah. And speaking of starting with, with plain imaging, because, you know, our, our trauma guys were the, were the same way, like get the x-rays make sure you understand how to evaluate the x-rays and you know you can look at your advanced imaging as well to help you with your surgical planning but let's let's start off with the you know we talk about the ap and energy debuts what exactly if you're looking at a film through your eyes where are you looking for and what are you trying to look at to make sure everything lines up and nothing's going awry or off sure yeah so i think that the most important thing i would do when i look at any x-ray and and one of the benefits of being a trauma surgeon or being in, you know, a resident on the trauma service is you get some terrible x-rays, right? You're going to be looking at some awful x-rays, but that gives you an opportunity to make improvements, right? So the, the way to make improvements is to go talk to your x-ray techs about their really amazing x-rays. Go talk to them about, holy cow, that x-ray that you got on that patient was amazing. And this is why. That is the most powerful way to interact with your colleagues, your people that you're so dependent on. And you will get so much out of that on the way back. They're going to want to reproduce that x-ray over and over and over because they appreciate the fact that you're noticing how good that x-ray is. So, you know, this x-ray is kind of a, a cut down version of an AP pelvis here. And for acetabulum fractures, I asked my, the first question I asked myself is dislocated or not? And in in trauma, there's no in-between in my mind. There's no subluxation. This isn't a sports case. This is a <laughs> trauma case. So it's either in or out because it didn't belong out at all. So even if it's partially in, it's still out. Uh, so I think that's honestly a pretty easy question to answer when you really just think about it as being a binary thing. So that's the first question I ask myself. Once I've established that, then I'm going to go ahead and look at the iliopectineal and the ilioischial line because those are just so critical. And here on the on this image, we see the iliopectineal line as being that red line there and the ilioischial line being roughly that blue line. And they are really lines. So that's all they are on x-rays. So you have to really watch your terminology when you say this, because a lot of people will go ahead and say, 
oh, there's a there's a disruption of the iliopectineal alliance, so there's a disruption of the anterior column. Well, there may or may there may not be. What I know when there's a break in a line is that is just that there's a break in a line. And we use that information to then get on towards our towards the information we really want, which is eventually the diagnosis. But the iliopectineal line roughly equates to the to the pelvic brim. And that's going to run all the way back towards the sacrum at S2 until it diverges at the very end. You're going to see actually kind of it diverge into two lines way in the back. And that's kind of just upper level to understand where that's going and not really the important part of the diagnosis for the acetabulum fracture. But And then the ilioischial line, that's essentially an overlap of, of structures posteriorly. So it'll give you a, a general sense of is there, if there is a disruption in the posterior column of the bone. Okay, so that's a, a really important thing to learn. And if you go back to Leiternal's book, you can see exactly the portion of the bone that they cut out and the ilioischial line just goes away. And it's a, a beautiful example of why x-rays are powerful. And x-rays are two-dimensional representation of something that is three-dimensional. And there's a really powerful, it's a really powerful way to look at three-dimensional things because you see how white these things are on our plain x-ray. That means that they are very dense. That means that they're usually overlapped structures. So kind of the densest portion of the bones. Then we go on and we look at the anterior and the posterior walls. So the anterior and posterior wall, um, I actually don't think it's super helpful to look at this on an AP for trauma, but it is super helpful to understand it from trauma in order to eventually do hip preservation work. So you can look in the anterior wall is going to be in this image, the green line there. So that anterior wall is going to run up. And I always find the best way to find it is to actually come down into the superior aspect of the obturative foramen and then just follow that up and you'll find a density right along that green line. And that's going to be your anterior wall. And then the posterior wall, if you just start down on your ischial tuberosity and just trace that around, you're going to run into your posterior wall and then you follow it up towards where it's going to meet superiorly. So that's that kind of purplish line, or red, I guess, red line there, or maroon line, we'll say. Yeah, there we go. It's great representation of what we're looking at. And the more you get used to looking at these lines, the more things you're going to see. Then we look at the teardrop. The teardrop is not the most useful thing for general acetabulum kind of diagnosis, but it is helpful to look at because on many really anterior moieties, you're going to have to understand where the teardrop is and when the teardrop goes away on one side versus the other. And that kind of helps you think about that. And here it's outlined pretty nicely, but the lateral limb is going to be that the inferior aspect of that anterior wall, the medial limb, the obturator canal, but really immediately it's kind of that cotyloid fossa down there. And when it does fracture, you know that you have some sort of a disruption into the quadrilateral surface. But again, not the most helpful thing that we look at. And then the last thing is the sourcil, so the eyebrow in French. But that's just such a dense line because it's looking all the way back straight posteriorly. And it really gives us a good representation of what's going on in the dome of the acetabulum for really roughly 60% of our weight-bearing dome. So that's, those are the things we're going to be looking at around the acetabulum. No, that was perfect. That was great. And just to do a quick recap, you mentioned number one, is it dislocated or not? And then number two, you looked at the iliopectineal. You talked about looking at the ilioischial lines. You talked about looking at the anterior wall, posterior wall. You also talked about looking at the teardrop as well as the source of the eyebrow per se. And those are the main things that you're looking for on your AP exams. Now, we also mentioned getting our Jude views. These are the, our kind of not our off-axis views a little bit, right? Just to get 
perpendicular beams to different parts of the pelvis. But can you kind of explain what these views are and then what are you looking for on these views? Sure. So the first thing I think about is how do you get these views? Because it's completely different in the x-ray bay downstairs versus in the operating room. Completely different how you get them. So essentially in the, in the x-ray suite, you're going to go ahead and leave that x-ray beam exactly where it is for an AP, for an obturated oblique and an iliac oblique, and you're going to move the patient. So essentially when you're moving the patient for, an, for either one of these, you want to take whatever the structure is and put it basically parallel to the beam. So if you're doing an iliac oblique, you need to roll the patient onto the affected side and you're going to get the ilium on FOSS. So it'll be parallel to the beam and you'll get a nice view of the ilium. And this is really helpful to see if the fracture comes up into the iliac wing. That can be really difficult to see on the AP. Sometimes you'll see it, but it's really helpful for that particular point. However, it's also helpful for that posterior border of the bone. So down there where we see the ischial spine and we see the greater sciatic notch and the lesser sciatic notch, super helpful to know where that fracture is coming out, particularly with transverse fractures. You really want to see where they're coming out in that greater sciatic notch. Other than that, you're going to see a little bit of the sacrum, a little bit of the SI joint. You'll see the AIIS. You'll see the ASIS. You'll see the ischial tuberosity. You'll see all of these things. So it's not just about seeing just the posterior column and the anterior wall. You certainly can see that, but it's not the only thing that you're looking at. And here we see that anterior wall there represented on the, the green line there. So that's really a helpful view, but not as helpful as the obturator oblique, which we'll flip to next. So that that obturator oblique is turning the affected side up. So you're going to take a 45 degree bump, whatever you want, and just roll that whole patient like a hot dog, roll them up so that you get the obturator oblique, you get the obturator foramen parallel to the beam. And this is going to be really helpful because you're going to get a beautiful view of the anterior column. And you're going to get a beautiful view of the posterior wall. Oftentimes you can make the diagnosis of a posterior wall fracture just on this view, but it also comes into play for the associated both column. The associated both column, you're going to see that spur sign, and we'll go through that later when we're talking about the individual fracture patterns. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. And I, I definitely like a, a good obturator oblique. Uh, I don't know, it's visually appealing to me for, for some reason. But yeah, it's like you just said, the uh, obturator oblique, you're assessing that anterior column, posterior wall uh, as well. So you mentioned the name of a lot of this surgeon a lot, a very important surgeon, a very famous surgeon. But can you kind of talk a little bit about the classification for acetabulum fractures? And then we can kind of go through some examples of each just so everybody's seen it for those that are watching the video, at least, and at least everybody's heard it for those that are listening. Absolutely. So Dr. Leiternell and Dr. Juday came up with this classification really based on just careful patient study. And it's really great how it's organized because it can really really help a lot. The So there's five elementary patterns and five associated patterns. So there's five elementary patterns, anterior wall, posterior wall, anterior column, posterior column. Super easy, but we're missing one there, right? So we're missing the fifth, which is the transverse. Now the transverse does involve both columns of bone, both the anterior and posterior column, but Dr. Leiternell put it in the elementary pattern classification because of the simplicity of it. Very simple fracture pattern, although it can be very devastating for patients. So that's really the elementary patterns. Now the associated patterns, those are gonna be a little bit more complex. They're gonna involve both columns mostly, except for one. So we'll go through them. So I like to think about it as, well, 
if I, the last one I always say for an elementary pattern is a transverse. So I start there, start with transverse posterior wall because it's the one that everyone always forgets. So we start with transverse posterior wall and then we go to the ones that everyone always remembers, the anterior column, posterior transverse, the associated yep. both column. And we go to the T-type. And then the last one is the posterior column, posterior wall. And I leave that posterior column, posterior wall last to remember because it's the only one that doesn't, uh, only one of the associated patterns that doesn't go across both columns. It stays isolated to the posterior column. So I find that's a super helpful way to remember them at least. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember that was a great so-called PIM question <laughs> when we were residents that we would be asked on morning, you know, sign out, if you, especially if you had an acetabulum fracture, you should definitely know the classifications of the system and then which, which, what fracture yours falls under if it's, you know, or the majority of what that falls under. And so maybe we could go through some of the elementary patterns and those views that you are diagnosing these on the best. And then we can go through some of these associated patterns just so when people see these x-rays, they know, okay, this is what I need to look for this. And this is how this looks. Sure. I think there's one thing I wanted to talk about before we yeah. take that step, because it'll really help yeah. with this whole thing. So we talked about, you know, getting to know if the iliopectineal line and the, or the ischial line is disrupted. So if you go down and you just make a simple chart for yourself and you say, all right, that's the only thing I'm going to know. I'm going to look at that and I'm going to know on that AP pelvis if the iliopectineal line is disrupted. Well, if only the iliopectineal line is disrupted, you have a very limited subset of fractures that it could possibly be. So the only ones that are only going to disrupt anteriorly would be potentially the anterior wall, the anterior column. That's it. That's where we stop if you just have an iliopectineal disruption. Now, if you've got just an ilioischial disruption, you're also very limited. Maybe a posterior wall, a posterior column, posterior column, posterior wall. So you've basically got three fractures. So the others, you know, really have to have, the others really have to have both lines disrupted. So you know that if I've got my ilioischial and my iliopectineal lines disrupted, the only possibility from an elementary pattern is a transverse. Yep. And then, from associated patterns, you've got four. So your anterior column, posterior transverse, associated both column. You've got your T-type and you've got your transverse posterior wall. So just by knowing the lines, just by saying, all right, I know that my ilioischial and my iliopectineal lines are disrupted, you know that 50% of those fracture patterns are out the window and it can only be five potential fracture patterns. And then we'll talk about some, some ways to go ahead and sort that out more. Yeah, no, I think that was a great tidbit that you just said and a great way to think about it, especially if you're looking at, you know, you're looking at the x-rays, you say, well, is this line the only line that's disrupted? And then again, like you said, there's only a certain amount of fractures it could be if your iliopectineal line is disrupted versus your ischial line. And, you know, if they're both disrupted and it's elementary, then you know you're, you're transverse. And then if it's not transverse, you're looking at you're some of your other associated patterns. A great tip. And for those that are listening, hopefully you replay those last two minutes just to let it sink in your head. <laughs> Again, great advice. And so moving forth and going through some some different elementary fractures or different elementary patterns, I guess one of the most common ones are posterior walls. So what what views are you looking or are you trying to see this the best on or any tips for diagnosing these? Yeah. So so posterior wall by far the most common, right? We see it all the time. We see it in all players. We see it in young people, old people, but it's, you know, again, going to happen through the knee for the most part. It's that femoral head driving out posteriorly. Want to know if they're dislocated. So that internally rotated view and that 
There's an x-ray there on the screen that really points that out where you don't see any lesser trochanter at all because the patient's dislocated. But the view that's going to help you the most is the obturator oblique. That obturator oblique gives you a great view of that posterior wall, and you can usually diagnose, even if it's a multifragmentary wall, you can really diagnose it and really lay it out. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And are you a fan of, uh, I guess this is maybe a little outside the scope, but if it is dislocated posterior wall and you have a hip dislocation when you reduce, are you a fan of a traction pin in the in the, in the distal femur to to stop it from coming back and, and dislocating again? Or are you like to range or you're a fan of uh, the examination under anesthesia? What, what is your, your go-to? Well, I think that if you're in a place that's allowing for reduction of hips, in the ED trauma bay, that's kind of your best opportunity to do your basic exam under anesthesia. We all know those significant pops, everything pops right back into place and you take it through a range of motions, totally stable. And if you've got one that there's no chance of an incarcerated fragment and you're not, and you don't have a femoral head that's kind of sitting perched on a, a piece of bone, well, I, I would be a little hesitant to put a traction pin in that patient. And the reason being that there's nothing worse than I come in in the morning and I say to the resident, great job, you reduced that non-op treatment. And then they say, well, there is a traction pin in the distal femur. So then we're right. talking to the patient about taking this pin out that, well, we really need in the first place. So, so we don't want to be doing that. So really, I would say those are the things you're looking for. Is it unstable? Is it a multifragmentary wall that you know is going to get fixed? Or is the femoral head perched on some sort of bone that's going to cause further injury? to the femoral head cartilage. So those are the things I'm thinking of when I'm thinking about traction. Ah, okay. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Thanks for explaining that. And so that's posterior wall, continuing forth on, I guess, on the posterior side of things. What about posterior column? What's making something a, a posterior column? Is it just, is the initial lines just a little disrupted or does it need to, do we need fracture lines to other areas? What, what makes this a posterior column? Yep. So for a posterior column, we know that we've got disruption of the ilioischial line. Got to have that. Now, as far as delineating what might be a posterior column, the most important thing to think about is what else could it possibly be? Well, the most common thing that it could possibly be is a transverse. So that delineation between a transverse and a posterior column is actually one of the harder things to delineate until you really think about it. So, but we know that a posterior column will not have disruption of the iliopectineal line. So if you've got an intact iliopectineal line and a disrupted ilioischial line, you pretty much know that you have a posterior column. So that's really going to be a helpful thing. And then when you get to your CAT scan, that's again, a perfect opportunity to learn to tell the difference between the two because a column fracture goes from left to right on those axial cuts. However, a transverse fracture will go front to back. Okay. So going to be different diagnoses here. and But a posterior column is a real fun fracture to fix. And as long as you get to the correct diagnosis, you know you're going to have the surgical exposure in the right place. And really, like I said, fun fracture to fix. And does the line, the fracture line, does it have to be going through the obturator foramen to be considered a column fracture or just disruption of the ileolitial line is, yep. you know, yeah, so it doesn't have to come through the obturator ring, doesn't have to come down really anywhere. You just need that disruption of the posterior of the ilioischial line. Now, when you do have fracture lines that come down in the obturator frame and kind of brings up a different topic, you need to start thinking about T-types, pelvic ring, combined injuries, all sorts of things start to jump into your head. Okay. And, and continuing forth with more of, 
or elementary fracture patterns? What about anterior column? And again, what, what views are you looking for on here? And how often are you really seeing these anterior column fractures? Yeah, so anterior columns are actually pretty common. You'll see them in all sorts of different ways. And really, it's the iliac oblique that's going to be the most helpful x-ray for you because that's going to give you that fracture line on FOSS. And the disruption of the iliopectineal line is kind of the thing that you don't always see with an anterior column. And technically you should, but occasionally you will have an anterior column that kind of just comes directly north. And I've seen people dislocate their femoral head directly through the seal and straight up through the anterior column. And those are still anterior column fractures. And then you want to start to think about how Turnell described them as far as their location. Are they high anterior columns, low anterior columns, very low anterior columns? Because all the above are going to be treated differently. But as long as you can get to that diagnosis, I find the anterior column to be one of exclusion. So you're kind of trying to exclude other fracture patterns, like an associated both column or an anterior column post-imaging transverse. I'm trying to exclude those to really give myself an isolated anterior column. Yeah. And when you're looking at the kind of subclassifications you were mentioning, you're just kind of looking and seeing where does a fractional line exit. So if it exits, like you said, the iliac crest is more of a high anterior versus if it's, you know, below the level of the AIIS or around the iliopectineal eminence, that's very low. So is that something that you want your residents to try to figure out? And, and when they come to you and talk to you and say, hey, you know, hey, we have this patient come in, I think they have a, you know, a high anterior, anterior column, a sabum fracture. You know, is that something that you want your residents again in the habit of trying to diagnose these or classify these? No, I don't think that's important from the ED yeah. resident point of view. I think that that's more for the people who are fours and fives and fellows who are thinking about doing this for a living that then, then you have to start thinking about it. And when you start drawing these fractures out, it's helpful to know where the anterior column is coming out because it can be kind of hard to, to really put it on a three-dimensional model. Okay. And and you mentioned this before, you, you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about uh, CT scans, when we were talking about our posterior column, but can you kind of touch base on these transverse, these transverse fractures, which are still in our elementary fracture patterns, although it involves both columns? Mm -hmm. So the transverse is always going to have a disruption of the iliopectineal and the ilioischial line. So that's, that's your diagnostic feature that really delineates it from, from many posterior columns. And what you want to remember is that that this really separates the superior aspect of the fracture or the intact bone from the ischiopubic segment. We're going to call that segment that's floating free below with the femoral head. That's going to be that ischiopubic segment. And there's always a fracture that is shortening. These are very high energy injuries. They typically are going to happen through the knee. They can happen through a very violent strike on the side, but, but it's typically going to be very shortening. So they can be very difficult to get reduced. Now we do look at them and kind of say, well, where does this fracture line come across? How much injury is there to the cartilage that we're trying to help here? And that's where this transtectal, juxtatectal, or infratectal comes in. So transtectal fractures are the worst. Those are going directly through the seal. They're transverse, so they're really taking out the, the large part of the weight-bearing dome. The juxtatectal ones are a little bit better and probably much more common. They're just a little bit lower. And for the most part, you're your sourcea will be protected, your weight-bearing dome. And then the infratectal, those are going to be really low ones that cross the cotyloid fossa, but those are going to be much more rare and typically will be kind of a part of a different fracture pattern rather than just an isolated transverse. These are these can be bad players when they're transtectal. So you really have to understand where the most displacement is because sometimes you'll get the most displacement 
posteriorly. Sometimes you'll get the most displacement anteriorly. And that can really dictate where you're going to make your surgical approach and how you're going to get that reduction. Because the one thing you do know with a transverse is that you have to get both sides of that joint reduced perfectly. And however you have to do that is what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And I love how you just described it. And especially when you talked about the transectal versus it was just a bad one to have in juxtextal and infratectal, uh, which are all uh, very important things to know. Uh, and so what about some of our one, one elementary that I didn't include here that I just thought of was an anterior wall, but you mentioned it a little bit earlier for your, how, how often are you seeing just isolated anterior wall fractures? Yeah, I, during my residency, at least I don't think I saw a lot of just anterior wall. They're more kind of around where the junction of like the issue of pubic ramus, I believe that. <laughs> I'm fucking yeah, so that's where we always yeah. think about it, right? So I think the most important thing about anterior walls is never say it during your trauma sign out. Just never say it. Just, <laughs> just, we would all rather you call something a high ramus yeah. rather than call it an anterior wall. So an anterior wall is by definition needs to have a segmental piece of the wall that really goes into the pelvic brim. So that is a very weird fracture to get. They're terrible to fix because oftentimes they are very unstable. There's a lot of cartilage injury and they can be really challenging. And I have fixed three in my entire practice. Yeah. So they are very uncommon injuries. And uh, I think if it's the last one that you mentioned when you're going through your diagnosis, probably a <laughs> good plan. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't even include it on here, but. Uh, you know, just to at least talk about it, just to say we spoke about it. Now, can let's go through some of our associated fracture patterns, just so we people know and have seen these before and kind of know exactly uh, at least what they're looking for. Uh, so, yeah. what, what about you know some of these posterior fracture patterns? Sure. So, if we start off with that posterior column, posterior wall, the best way for me to explain this to people is that this is almost like a like a trajectory of patterns. You've got the posterior wall, then you get these transitional posterior walls, which are very comminuted walls that go into the greater sciatic notch. That's not an individual classification, but it just kind of brings you across to this posterior column, posterior wall. So the posterior column, posterior wall is going to disrupt the ilioischial line, and then you'll have a comminuted kind of separate posterior wall fracture. And I like to not think of these from the perspective of looking at a CAT scan really critically and saying, oh, I think I see a crack into the posterior column. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the fracture that has a displaced posterior column segment where you see that ilioischial line displaced and then you have a comminuted posterior wall. And these are, it's important because you have to treat them separately. You have to get the column reduced before you can ever touch the wall. So that's why it becomes a really important fracture pattern to diagnose. Perfect, love it. And continuing forth, you, you talked about posterior column posterior wall you just mentioned. What about transverse posterior wall? One of the things that a lot of us remember this one. I, I remember had some starting off, had some trouble diagnosing. Not this one, I think, but one of the, the hemi-transverse, actually, that's what I'm thinking of. But for the, for the transverse posterior wall, what, what can you kind of tips yep. or tricks you can tell us about that? Yeah, so transverse posterior wall diagnosis is all about the basics. So transverse fracture pattern, going to disrupt both the ilioischial and the iliopectineal line. So it's there. And then if you roll the patient up and on the obturator oblique, you see a posterior wall fracture separate, transverse posterior wall. That's how you get there. And that's, it's always a diagnostic feature getting from the transverse to the transverse posterior wall. So that's a good example of one there. 
Now, when you get to your CAT scan, you want to be looking for that transverse component going anterior to posterior, and then you'll have a separate fracture pattern. But a lot of people miss one or the other because they get concentrated on the CT cuts on one of the fractures, but you may miss the posterior wall because it might be lower or higher than the cut you're looking at for your transverse component. So just really look at everything that you've got, and that's how you're going to get there. This transverse posterior wall is a very common fracture pattern, very devastating to a patient. And oftentimes it is the one that needs a real reduction and a traction pin because they're very unstable and you don't want to leave that femoral head sitting on that intact bone, just having that bone dig into it. Right. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. And then you can see the meat, the femoral head, I guess, kind of <laughs> went medially and is not underneath the dome over here. But yeah, yeah. Perfect. And this is what the one I was thinking of that confused me for a long time through residency until I finally got it, but it was kind of these posterior hemi-transverse fractures. Can you kind of talk to us base about these? Yep. Yeah, so the anterior column posterior hemi-transverse is, again, a really common fracture pattern, but what you need to do diagnostically is just get close. So when I have an old person, they fall on their side, I'm immediately thinking, okay, do I have an associated both column or an anterior column posterior hemi-transverse? I'm okay. thinking probably one of those two to start with. So you've got disruption of both the lines, because it's a associated fracture pattern and it's not a posterior column, posterior wall. So you've got disruption of both lines. And then you go ahead and you say, okay, well, that femoral head is really what we call centrally dislocated, but it is externally rotated and pushed into that medial aspect of the acetabulum. And then you want to say to yourself, all right, well, I, I do have some amount of, of sourceal or roof of the acetabulum or intact acetabulum still in continuity with the axial skeleton. If you have any piece of joint that's still intact with the axial skeleton, and you know that you're kind of between anterior column, posterior transverse and an associated both column, you know what you have. You've got an anterior column, posterior transverse because the flip side is the associated both column. Ah, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Let me just go with the both columns. So again, you just briefly again, or just shortly go over again, the difference between that and then this both column, which we have here that we can discuss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the associated both column is again, going to have disruption of both lines. But yep. what you're seeing here is that the entire joint is going to go with the femoral head as it dislocates medially. Here, you're not going to have any part of the joint in continuity with the intact skeleton. So you'll see that iliac wing kind of hanging out in the breeze. And when you flip them over to that obturator oblique, you're going to see what's called the spur sign, which is a pathognomonic sign for an associated both column. That little piece of bone there that has that little white arrow on it, that's the only part, or that's the most distal intact part of the ilium. And that's what you're going to build everything back to. So you're going to bring that whole joint that went medial, you're going to bring it back and make it a part of the intact skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. These are always, I remember always hearing about that, the spur sign and knowing that's just, especially during morning sign outs. Yes. I also definitely know those that are listening. And one of the things that you mentioned a little bit earlier were kind of T-shaped fractures. And, and this is again, a, a variation, not a variation, but it's a little different of, than just a completely transverse fracture. Can you kind of just quickly go over what a T-shaped fracture is and, and what you're looking for to differentiate that between just a straight transverse fracture? Yep. But a T-type is going to be a transverse fracture pattern, but then it has, so remember a transverse fracture pattern gives you an ischiopubic segment. So that ischiopubic segment would typically be one piece if it's a transverse. Yeah. If it's a T-type, that is split in two. 
So there's a fracture line that comes down and splits your ischiopubic segment into an anterior and posterior segment. So you'll see that diagnostically as a fracture that comes down through the obturator foramen. Sometimes though, you'll see it, we call it a sneaky T. It stays in the bone and it comes down through the ischium. And you may not see it unless you turn that patient up for the obturator oblique, but sometimes you'll see a fracture line coming down there. And super important because now you know that the front and the back of the acetabulum are going to move independently of each other. And typically the T-type is the one that we'll oftentimes think about a dual approach for because you can't always get both parts reduced. Yeah. 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 Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, that was a great way of, of, of explaining it. Dr. Leslie, I mean, I thought this was super informative and, and very helpful, uh, especially in diagnosing you know, acetabulum fractures and and knowing what x-rays to look at. You know, we talked about uh, the anatomy. We talked about what to look for on physical exam. We talked about pertinent things to look for on um, x-rays, what x-rays to get. And then we talked about the different fracture patterns and how to identify those. Anything else that you want the people uh, listening to this or watching this to know uh, before we wrap up here talking about how to diagnose acetabulum fractures? No, I think the most important thing is learn it now because no matter where you are, what you do, you're going to be on call somewhere someday and an acetabular fracture is going to roll through the door and you're going to feel really good if you look back at your AP and your Judavius and you say, <laughs> I know exactly what that is. Yeah, totally true. I, I remember I, I graduated, I took my boards earlier this year and uh, I've been taking uh, a call at one of the hospitals here and you know, you'll know you get uh, you'll get consulted you know, by the ED docs and you'll ask them like, hey, can you get the Jude views? And you know, and it's like, oh, okay, cool. I, I'm the person that knows this. <laughs> you know, yep. you got to know these things. It's been a, an honor actually having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And again, thanks for taking the time out of your day to, to come in and educate us all. Great. Thank you so much. Good luck to everyone. We hope that you all enjoyed this episode talking about acetabulum fractures and definitely talking about diagnosing acetabulum fractures. I know something that was very uh, daunting for the incoming resident or the, the new intern or the second year that's starting to take call by themselves. This can be sometimes scary, but hopefully we broke it down for you and that you understand it a little bit better. And uh, we hope that you checked out our YouTube video if you like a video or if you like visuals to accompany our podcast episodes and uh, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast at Nailed It Ortho and subscribe to the YouTube. Uh, follow us on social media at Nailed It Ortho on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we'll see you all next time.